you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In many ways, Solomon was the greatest Israelite king of all time. Abundance, security, and vastness characterized his long reign. Pastor Victor surveys Solomon's prodigious reign, tying it in to both the promises God made to Abraham before him and those he made regarding a future son of David after him. Solomon's fabulous wealth, unrivaled wisdom, and magnetic reputation serve as an archetype for the greater son of David whose reign will outshine even Solomon's majesty. Here now is episode 433, Son of David, part 5, Solomon's Reign, with Victor Gluckin. So we have looked at some great stuff. We've been talking about the Davidic covenant and about the son of David, Solomon, and how we've been able to see through the reign of Solomon some pretty awesome things about Jesus and his coming kingdom. Just by way of review, we've got some great understanding about what the Davidic covenant is all about. You remember the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant can be summed up in three things. What's the first part of the Davidic covenant that you remember here? That there would be a son of David, that David would have a son. And that this son of David would also be the son of God. And that the son of David, who's also the son of God, would do what? He'd be the king forever. That's right. Uh, We talked about what it means to be the Messiah. And the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashach, which means to anoint. And the Messiah is Ha-Mashiach. Look at y'all. There we go. And the Greek word Christos is the equivalent of Mashiach. And that's where we get our English word what? And last week we talked about Solomon's anointing as king and how there was an imposter on the throne, his brother Adonijah, and David woke up and he said, we got to get my son anointed right now. And so they had this grand uh, anointing of Solomon down in a place called Gihon by the prophet and the priest, and he was proclaimed king and he started his rule. And what was so interesting about that is we saw some great parallels to Jesus and his entry into that same city uh, thousands of years later uh, on Palm Sunday. Solomon rode in on David's mule, and we looked at how Jesus did that and how the crowds totally picked up on what he was trying to do and trying to claim, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Long live the kingdom of David and the son of David. And so tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off. You can go to 1 Kings in the Bible. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Solomon has been anointed to be the king. And 1 Kings chapter 2, we'll start. The first uh, part of our time together tonight is going to be about Solomon's kingdom and the early things that we see in that time. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Then David slept with his fathers, that means he died, and was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years, seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was what? Firmly established. Firmly established. We're going to look at five things that Solomon did when he first became king. And in fact, these five things are the first five things in many ways that we'll see 
that he did. And the first thing that he did was that he stopped or got rid of some of the rivals or enemies of the kingdom. Now, we're not going to get into all the ins and outs of exactly what he did, but the first person that he took care of was actually Adonijah, his brother. Adonijah was still causing trouble after David had died, and he was kind of sly and was trying to sneak around the palace and uh, gain some authority again. Remember, Adonijah from last week was the guy that proclaimed himself king while David was in his dwindling uh, years, then got brought down after Solomon was anointed king. But he's still alive. Solomon showed him mercy. But he starts sneaking around. And you know, when you're the king and you've got a rival, he had to squash that real quick. And back then, the way they squash it is they just kill you. So Adonijah uh, had initially received mercy, but because he continued to persist in rebellion against Solomon, Solomon had him killed. And then if you remember last week that Adonijah had some cohorts with him in his kingdom. Joab, the leading general, and Abiathar, one of the leading priests. And so when Solomon got word that Adonijah was again trying to cause trouble in the kingdom, he banished the priest Abiathar. He didn't kill him because he was, it says that he was a man that had carried the Ark of the Covenant and he, and he respected that and so he banished him from the kingdom. And then he found Joab who had been a, a, a general of his father David but had been one of the co-conspirators against Solomon and he had him put to death as well. He had him put to death as well. And then one other guy, uh, if you read 1 Kings, you'll learn his name is Shimei and he was just a troublemaker. And so he was... Uh, given some mercy, given another chance, but then he was destroyed as well. So this is a sort of a strange thing to do when you first become king. But if you think about it, before Solomon even became king, there were people that were a threat to the kingdom and a threat to his throne. And part of being the king and part of being in charge, if you're going to establish your kingdom like we just read, is you need to stop those that are trying to overthrow that government. And that is what he did with his first act. In your notes, here's why we have the purpose of this whole thing. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 46 in the NIV. It says, Then the king gave the order to Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and he struck Shimei down and killed him. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hand. You know, his father David, if you've read anything about David, he had trouble throughout his reign in his kingdom. His kids were acting up foreign armies would come in and mess around with him. Saul's descendants would often cause trouble. And before David died, he told Solomon, he says, look, if you're going to be the king, you need to deal with these things right away and quickly. And that's a sign of a good leader. And that's what Solomon did. So his first act was that he stopped and got rid of any rivals or enemies to his kingdom. Let's look at the next thing he did. Chapter four. The second thing that he did was he appointed new leaders In chapter 4, we're going to meet some of the key leaders of this new administration. In chapter 4, verse 1, Now Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Ahalorif and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zabad, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend, or his advisor. Ahishar was over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the men, subject to forced labor. So 
these people right here sort of made up his uh, inner circle, his, his cabinet. Who would be in charge of the military? Who would be in charge of the religious side of the kingdom? Who would be in charge of employment and transportation and housing and urban development? These are all these guys' responsibilities. These were sort of his inner circle of, of advisors. And then these are new names. These are not just holdovers from his father's kingdom. And then in verse 7 to verse 19, which is a lot of fun to read because there's some great names there. What Solomon did in verse 7 was Solomon had 12 deputies over all Israel who provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month of the year. And these are the names. And we'll read the first one just because it's a cool name. Ben-Hur. Hey, there he is. In the hill country of Ephraim. And then each of these other names that are listed are the equivalent of a governor. So what Solomon does is he appoints 12 governors that are going to rule over each of the tribes of Israel. So in the United States, we have one president uh, over the whole country, and then we have 50 governors who are in charge of each state. So the ultimate authority is with the president, but then there are different lower officials like governors that are in charge more specifically of each region, and that's what Solomon does. He appoints these uh, these leading council on the top, and then these 12 governors over each of the tribes of Israel. If you want to have some fun when you get home, you can read those verses out loud to yourself. All right, so that's what, that's what he did next. He, the first thing he did was he stopped and got rid of the rivals or enemies, and then he put in new leaders over the nation. The third thing we see is that there was peace, abundance, and there was land. Peace, abundance, and land. So Solomon is starting things out very, very, very well. Second Chronicles verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Listen how good life was in Israel during this time. The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedars, which was the best kind of building material, as plentiful as sycamores in the lowland. I mean, things are good. That's what we call bling bling, right? If there's more, if, if the equivalent of how many stones there are, there was gold. The abundance during this time is, is so, so uh, evident and prevalent. In chapter 4, look at verse 20. Listen to what we read about this time. Verse 20, it says that Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And they were eating and drinking and what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Verse 25. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So we've got a lot of resources. Gold is like stones. And here we see that the people of the nation of Israel in and of themselves, there's tons of them. There's tons of them. I was thinking about, did anybody see the Olympics in like 2008 when it was in Beijing, the opening ceremonies? I know the Bizdiras would have, right? And they had that one scene with like a million people drumming a drum, right? It was just this vast sea, and, and China was, was illustrating, hey, we've got a lot of people here. We've got a lot of people here, and it was a little intimidating, right? Poor London had to go next, and all they could do was James Bond. I mean, that was kind of cool too, but... <laughs> So Israel is filled with people. They are a growing nation with great abundance 
and they're in peace and safety. In fact, one of the phrases we read here in verse 25, this phrase, every man is under his vine and fig tree. Let's look at your notes about this phrase. This phrase, every man being under his vine and fig tree, implies freedom and independence of the common man. If a farmer has a vine and a fig tree, they have some significant resources, and if they're living in safety and every man is under his vine and fig tree, he isn't under foreign occupation, nor is he being unjustly or overly taxed by his own kingdom. He is enjoying the fruit of his own labor rather than giving it to someone else. See what that means? There also is an image of peace and safety if he is able to do this. So to be a farmer, to have a vine and a fig tree to begin with is a good thing. The fact that they're producing the fruit and the crops implies that there is abundance. The fact that you can sit there and enjoy the fruit of it gives us the indication that you're not being taxed so much so that you don't have anything for yourself. And they got a lawn chair and they're sitting out enjoying this. That's what you do when you are free and when you are rejoicing. So we have abundance, we have peace, and then we have some notes here about the land. Look again at uh, verse uh, 21 in chapter 4. It says that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the river Euphrates, he ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of of his life. Now, on your notes, uh, you have a second map uh, up on the wall here as well. Solomon's kingdom extended beyond the borders that David had in his kingdom dramatically, right? Dramatically. This is the land of Canaan, and the, the green uh, color on the map shows the kingdom at the beginning of his reign, and that there was a great expansion. In the north, his border went all the way to the Euphrates River. That's in modern-day Iraq. And then in the southern border, it went to the border uh, of Egypt and all the way to the Mediterranean Sea on the one side and on the other side of the Jordan River. I mean, this is significant. If you remember when Israel first came into the land of Canaan, they didn't have anything. They were just figuring their way around the land, taking up uh, land and land. But here you have the largest size of the kingdom in all of its history. It's from the river Euphrates in the north all the way down to the land of Egypt. In 2 Chronicles 9, verse 26, it says that Solomon was the ruler over all the kings from the Euphrates River, even to the land of the Philistines, and as far as the border of Egypt. Now, those of you that are familiar with Scripture, hopefully would have, something would have been triggered in your mind when you heard what his boundary was. Those of you that aren't as familiar, we'll talk about that now. Verse 20 and 21 reference that Israel is as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the land is described and evidence of Solomon ruling over their enemies, the land being from the Euphrates to Egypt, are references to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is one of the other great covenants in the Bible, like the Davidic. The Abrahamic covenant related to giving the people of Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. Abraham was the father of this nation And God spoke to him while he was just a sojourner in the land and said, Abraham, I am going to give you this land. Now, let's look at what God said to Abraham in light of what we've read about Solomon's kingdom. Chapter 12, 
verse, let's skip to verse 7, the second one on your notes. It says that the Lord appeared to Abram in Canaan, and this is what he promised him. He said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham is in Canaan, and God says, I'm going to give your descendants this land. Later on in chapter 15, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river what? Euphrates. So at this time, Abraham is just a a guy with a wife. He doesn't have any kids and he's living in tents. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, I see in you the potential to be a man of faith. And he he promises him this land, the land of Canaan. And here, as he expands this promise, he says, I'm going to give your descendants the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. In Genesis 17, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you'll be a father of the multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations." I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make nations of you. And kings will come forth from you. Remember, he doesn't even have a son. I will establish my covenant between me and to your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I'll be their God. And lastly, in Genesis 22, verse 17 Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now, what we're reading about is quite the time in Israel. Because under Solomon, the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in its greatest realization. They are in the land, blessed, living in peace, under a good king whose rule is extending beyond the regions of Canaan. They're living in a time where they possess the land, have blessing, and many descendants in peace on every side. This was God's vision for his people and is being realized during Solomon's reign. So the, the, the writer of 1 Kings tells us that Israel is growing and is so, so large that it is like they're the sand of the seashore. That's what God had promised to Abraham. Now, they're not literally, obviously, the sand of the seashore. It's a word to describe how big they are. But their land goes from the river Euphrates down to Egypt. This is the land that God had promised them. They're, they're living in peace in the very land that generations before God had promised to an old man with no kids who didn't have a house and an address. And here it's all coming to pass. I mean, this was quite the time for God's people. Amen to that? The fourth thing that we see is that nations and kings from all over the world are flowing to Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 21 again in chapter 4. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and they served Solomon all the days of his life. Verse 24. For he, Solomon had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipsa even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around about him. Verse 34, 
Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Let's go to chapter 10 quickly. So Solomon is ruling over the kings around him. Kings and uh, people from all nations are coming to Jerusalem to hear from Solomon. And in chapter 10, verse 23, it says that King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon. I mean, that's quite the statement. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Again, this is quite the moment. I mean, my words are failing me a little bit here. The kings of the earth are coming to Jerusalem to hear what Solomon has to say. I mean, this is, this is an amazing time. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. So Solomon is being exalted, and his fame is going out to all the surrounding nations, and then those surrounding nations are telling their surrounding nations, and their surrounding nations are telling their surrounding nations. One of the most famous incidents of someone coming to hear of Solomon is the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba. It was very notable for the Queen of Sheba to travel so far because she brought all those cats with her. That was, it, it was much funnier the first time I told that joke. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. The Queen of Sheba travels, and she just, she's heard from miles and miles away about Solomon's wisdom. And she comes and sits at his feet and, and lets him teach her the ways of Yahweh. Amazing. So this fourth thing that we see during the time of Solomon's reign is that the nations around him are coming to hear of the wisdom of God, to learn the ways of God. And Solomon, in, in many cases, is ruling over them, and they're paying tribute to him. He's being exalted above all the other kings. And the fifth thing we'll look at here is that Solomon built a house for the Lord. He built the dwelling place of God here on the earth. What he built, after these four other things that we've learned so far, is he built the temple. On your notes, you have a picture of it. Here it is up on the wall. This is a picture of Solomon's temple. I mean, that's quite the massive uh, work of construction, don't you think? This is looking from the top over on top of it. This is on top of the mountain. This is the, from the ESV study Bible. This isn't in your notes, but this is the actual temple proper itself. It was huge. See these guys? This is like a scale of a person right there. That's how massive this temple is. And this was a permanent structure which was going to house the Ark of the Covenant and be the place where God's people would sacrifice permanently. Up to this point, they would do that at the tabernacle and it'd be moved around and that was a, basically a tent. It was portable. But Solomon is going to build this house on top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And it's huge and it's massive. And this would be the place, the one place on earth, if you were going to worship the true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you would come to this place. If you worship another God, you could set up your own altar and put up a pole and bow down to it. But if you're going to worship the one true God, 
It was commanded through his law that it would be done in this one place. And Solomon is the one that builds this permanent location. Let's go back to uh, chapter 8 quickly, and we'll see how this went down. It took him quite some time to build this. It was uh, filled with gold. It was filled with beautiful resources that the nations around him supplied. And when they finally went to dedicate the house in Second Chronicles, look what happened. Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. So every priest in all of the land came for the dedication of the temple, even if it was their day off. I mean, it's a dedication, you know what I mean? And the trumpeteers and the singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. And they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. So all the priests are there. They all have an instrument. They all have a a trumpet or a cymbal or something like that. It's like our church. Everybody getting a tambourine, right? And they cried out together, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. And then at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. I mean, this is clearly something that God wanted done if he shows up with his glory in this moment. And Solomon was the one that got to build this while he's ruling over this unparalleled time in Israel's history. And In chapter 8, verse 17, we'll read what he prayed at the dedication. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 17. He says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who will be born to you, He will build a house for my name. Do you remember reading that the first night we got together? This is where he promised the Davidic covenant. He said, you're not going to build a house. I'll build a house for you, a descendants. But your son is actually going to build a literal house. And this is that moment. Verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. Everybody's there. And he spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth, and have fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant, my father David. And then he said this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. 
So Solomon in this moment is recognizing God's faithfulness to his promise to David, his father. He's built this house that God's presence has just showed up in. And, it, and he has this, at the same time, this moment of humility. It's like, man, we did a good job here, but we're not even scratching the surface because of how great you are and how big you are. And then uh, picking up in Second Chronicles 7, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord that filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Wow, isn't that awesome? That's so awesome. This is such a cool time. We just talked about these five things that happened during Solomon's reign. First thing, he gets his kingdom firmly established. No rivals, no enemies, no one that's going to be subversive and have a conspiracy. And he firmly establishes his kingdom. And then he appoints new leaders. His cabinet, these 12 governors over the land of Israel. The peace, the prosperity, the number of people in his kingdom, the size of his kingdom. Have never, it's never been seen in Israel. And the people of God. They're not just wandering around the wilderness anymore. They are a kingdom with a king. And their king is so great. And the fourth thing we talked about is other kings are coming to hear what he has to say. And when he opens his mouth, he's telling them the words and the wisdom of Yahweh, of God Almighty. And then in this crowning moment, we're just early on in his reign, he builds and dedicates the temple of God in Jerusalem. And God comes with his glory, with fire and smoke, and descends upon the house. So cool. So cool. Let's go to chapter 9. However, what happens soon after this time is very depressing. When Solomon finished building the temple and God spoke to him and answered his prayer, it says in verse 6 of 1 Kings chapter 9, God said that if you follow me and obey me, I'll take care of you. But he said in verse 6, If you or your son indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast them out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the people. And this house, the one we just read about in the picture we just saw, this house will become a heap of ruin. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they, the people of Israel, the people of God, they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity upon them. You see, God was in a covenant with his people. He said, I'll take care of you. I want you to love me. I will be your God. You'll be my people. But if you go and start cheating on me with another God, if you start sacrificing to another God and start saying, oh, this is our God who's delivered us. Well, then the covenant will be broken. And this house, as grand as it is, will not be the place where my name dwells. And so sadly... Towards the end of Solomon's reign, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And the decline of Israel after being on the mountaintop began. But 
just like we talked about our first night together, there was this hope about the eternal nature of this covenant, which we called the messianic hope. And on your notes, we have Jeremiah 50, verse 4. This is what Jeremiah, around this time as the temple is going to be destroyed, it says that in those days at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well, and they will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God that they will seek. And they will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. They will come that they may again join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be for God. So God says, one day they're going to turn their hearts back to me. And they're going to say, oh man, I wish we were back in that time when Solomon was king. And they're going to start to seek me again. And if they do that, I will return to them. And Hosea, one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, says this, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without an ephod or household idols. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Well, this brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? If you'd like to leave any thoughts, questions, comments, come on over to restitutio.org. Find episode 433, part five of our Son of David class, and leave your feedback there. Also wanted to mention to those of you who are scholarly types that enjoy research and writing long, nerdy papers about theology— that the UCA is planning on calling for papers very soon. Whereas last year, the speakers were handpicked by the board members, including myself. This year, we are going to open it up to anyone who has something to present. And we'll have a committee that will decide between these different papers to put together a wonderful program for our conference in October. So stay tuned for more information about that. If you are somebody who's itching to write a paper about theology or Christology, then uh, start thinking about what your topic would be. And I hope to give you more information about this, including when the call for papers is fully open and what the criteria are and when the due date is. So stay tuned. That's it for this week, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. Thanks so much to those of you who are already doing that. And we'll see you next week. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.